Welcome everybody to another episode of the Canada Book Club here on Resonate Radio. It's a pleasure to have you back with us again. This episode was recorded on September 6th. Just a reminder, you can join us live for all of our episodes of the Canada Book Club recorded on Clubhouse. You can view us live on YouTube and Twitch every single Monday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can reach out to us on Instagram at Team Resonate, and you can also follow along in the Telegram chat. Much love, everybody. Let's get this book club episode started. Without further ado, take it away, everybody. Good afternoon and welcome everyone to the Resonant Radio. It's 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. We are here today again with the Cannabis Book Club. Each week we select a research paper on cannabis and uh, dissect it as a group as well as have a discussion at the end. Um, for this week, our topic is the limited effect of environmental stress on cannabinoid profiles in high cannabidiol hemp. And uh, without further ado, um, Casey, our book uh, book club host, uh, please take it away. Thanks, Molly. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Cannabis Club, brought to you by Resonate Radio. My name is Casey Albron. Um, I am coming. I am broadcasting from uh, Humboldt, California. Um, I'm involved in the cannabis and uh, solventless extraction industry at the moment. Um, I got a degree um, at Humboldt State up here in biology and just kind of wanted to continue like the scientific studies, you know. Um, So what better way to kind of nerd out on cannabis together than starting a cannabis scientific article book club with fellow scientifically interested people and also interested in cannabis. Um, we also have our awesome Dr. Anibis. Hello, Dr. Anna. Would you like to introduce? Hello, everybody who's joining us and my fellow panel members. I am Dr. Anibis, um, I guess, <laughs> Anna. Schwabi is my actual name. Um, I am a scientist. I have a background in cellular and molecular biology and population genetics. And I received my PhD in 2019, I think. (laughs) Um, And my dissertation work was focused on looking at variation in cannabis with a strong uh, root in looking at genetics and then how that relates to phenotypic variation. And um, I really like this paper we're talking about today. Um, I have read it before, but I reading it more in depth, I actually kind of like it, even though it does have some limitations. So I'm pretty excited to talk about this, and I hope you guys are excited to hear about it. Um. Um, always excited to hear about cannabis science. Um, 
Molly, would you like to introduce yourself? This is Molly. Yeah, thank you. I'm just dropping a link to the article for everyone who's thank watching um, on Twitch or YouTube. Uh, my name is Molly Russell. I am uh, another manager partner at Resonate Cannabis Inc. Um, I am. Hey, Molly, your mic is it's like really low. It's hard to hear you. I think it comes out for you like that every time. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I'm a management partner at uh, Resonant Cannabis, and uh, I'm a cultivator. Um, I don't have years and years of experience. I'm fairly new to the game compared to um, our legacy market uh, folks. Um, however, I am very curious in uh, all the recent research that has been coming out. And uh, although I do not have a scientific background, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, I do encourage everyone who is a bit hesitant because of the scientific um, aspect to, uh, you know, don't be shy and uh, dive into it as well. Um, it's really not as complicated as it seems. And it's a lot of great knowledge that's um, out there that you might not be, um, you know, part of just because you think it's too complicated. So I uh, just wanted to put that out for everyone. And uh, Corey, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Yep, uh, my name is Corey. I'm a principal managing partner at Resonate Cannabis Incorporated, a uh, large scale cultivator. I've uh, been producing medicine uh, for 17 years now. Uh, super large scale, I guess, officially uh, on the record since Canada went legalized. But uh, yeah, I've had several hundred lights uh, involved with cannabis plants for well over a decade now. So uh, yeah, excited to be here. I might sound a little bit tired and apologize, but I'm coming live from Portugal and it's 1.36 in the morning. So I will try not to sound as tired as I am, but it's exciting to be here because again, learning about the science aspect of it is something I find particularly exciting. Uh, it is, there are more scientific papers out there than I think a lot of cultivators actually give credit for. And I know some of the studies are limited because of, you know, for example, how many cultivars that are spoken about inside of these papers or strains, haha, <laughs> Dr. Anubis. But uh, yeah, you know, some limitations like that, for example, but it's always good to deep dive and go into these papers and, you know, understand um, you know, what the value is um, of them. So, yeah, glad to be here. I'm complete. Thanks, everyone. So glad to be here with you all from all around the world. Um, I guess I guess let's start getting into this. Um, so, yeah, every week we pick a paper, we share it amongst each other, read it, um, come back every week, and... You know, we just kind of will run through the abstract and then break down. Each one of us will take turns breaking down um, each section of a paper, which usually goes introduction, materials, results, and always a nice, plentiful discussion. Um, Molly is going to take it away with the introduction. We're not going to read the abstract this time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> uh, thanks, Molly. <laughs> yeah, so today's paper titled The Limited Effect of Environmental Stress on Cannabinoid Profiles in High Cannabidiol Hemp, or Hemp Cannabis Sativa L. Um, this paper is 
mostly out of New York. We've got Cornell Agritech. Um, yeah, all Cornell actually. Um, so hemp or cannabis sativa is a burgeoning crop, but research-based information about genetic and environmental effects of cannabinoid production is limited and will be essential for expanded cultivation. There are limited data available about the effect of environmental stressors on cannabinoid content, particularly for THC in high CBD hemp. To address this, five stress treatments were applied in a replicated field trial with three high CBD hemp cultivars, and cannabinoid content was assayed for over th a three-week time course spanning floral maturation. Cannabinoid production in terminal and fluorescent shoot tip samples of three cultivars was measured under stress, imposing by flooding, ethophon, powdery mildew, herbicide, and physical wounding in a split plot design. The, the treatments had limited effects on cannabinoid levels, with the exception of herbicide treatment, which resulted in decreased cannabinoid content. Notably, there was no evidence that any of these stresses caused THC concentration or the ratio of THC to CBD to increase at harvest. So now we can start <laughs> uh, taking a little closer look at this. Um, yeah, we'll go on to the introduction. Yeah, but it's unfortunately a very straightforward one this time, but it's kind of cool to see how they put together this experiment. And I'm complete. Thank you, Casey. Um, okay, so for um, this paper, we're talking about um, hemp. And uh, so this talks how uh, hemp has a lot of potential uses, which is, um, you know, grain fiber as well as cannabinoid production and for the most part we have been um, cultivating varieties that um, have had improved stable and uh, you know uniform traits that are also compliant with the regulations for the THC concentration uh, which in many countries um, there's a regu regulatory threshold and uh, it varies quite a bit between 0.2 and I think 1% is the highest in Australia. Um, it has been suggested that various uh, environmental stresses can increase the cannabinoids in hemp especially THC however those are pretty limited um, uh, published data to address that idea. Um, previous work also has determined that uh, the major cannabinoids produced, um, THC, CBD, and CBG, um, also referred to as cannabinoid chemotype. Uh, they're a simple genetic trait, and the variation in cannabinoid content is, is genetically complex and potentially affected by environment. The cannabinoid chemotype can be predicted uh, by the allelic state of the B locus with the production of mostly THC characteristic. Um, sorry, one second. <laughs> of homozygous uh, BT individuals, production of about equal THC and CBD. That one is chemotype two. And then we have production of mostly CBD, which is chemotype three. Uh, many commercially available cultivars, uh, including high cannabinoid hemp, as well as the grain and fiber types, um, they have been segregating at the B locus. Breeding um, B delta individuals will be essential to stabilize the cultivar for THC compliance, but the degree to which um, the other factors as stressors of the environment um, and then 
of academic production, that is not well established. Um, the most of the studies to the date um, that are, you know uh, have been done on the effect of the stresses uh, have been focused on chemotype one and two, which is high in THC or the THC in CBD, and. Uh, Another study found increase in THC upon UVB exposure in drug type uh, 1 and no increase in any cannabinoids in fiber plants and other work has linked um, abscisic acid with changes in THC concentration, although the direction of the effect was not consistent. Um, the effect of stress on field-grown high cannabinoid chemotype 3 hemp plants is not well understood. And uh, if stresses resulted in increased um, cannabinoid content or variation in the ratio of CBD to THC, the management of the stress in that case would play a critical role in the production systems. Uh, the current study um, that we're reading right now examines the effect of stresses of the accumulation of cannabinoids in three high cannabinoid CBD cultivars using exclusively female um, chemotype three plants uh, in a split plot design in a single outdoor location. And uh, they're examining five stresses as well as unstressed control. The five stresses were as follows. So the first one we have PGR, which is um, Ethiphone, I think I'm reading that correctly. Um, that is a plant growth reg uh, regulator, <laughs> regulator <laughs> that is converted uh, implanted to ethylene, a plant hormone involved in aspects of plant development. Um, previously, it was found that effect of uh, ethiphone on cannabinoids, um, but the effect on field-grown high CBD plants has yet to be investigated. Uh, it is possible that the treatment um, with ethifon uh, by inducing female-associated gene expression could lead to increased trichome numbers on female flowers and accordingly increased cannabinoid concentration. Number two was uh, flooding, which is a stress that can occur following high rainfall, especially in poorly drained soils. Um, that can lead to hypoxia in the roots, which can lead to reduced nutrient uptake and the production of stress hormones. However, previous work found limited differences in cannabinoid content between naturally flooded field and the one without the stress, or between irrigated and non-irrigated fields. Uh, number three is herbicide. Um, as the acreage grows, it will be important to consider how hemp responds to commonly applied chemicals, such as herbicides. Um, there sometimes can be a drift from the other uh, crops. Um, also, for example, the herbicide glyphosate interferes with the um, shikimate pathway in plants. And while there, um, it's not directly involved in cannabinoid biosynthesis, glyphosate-induced stress might alter cannabinoid levels through general stress responses, or it can be resulting in reduced vigor. Uh, number four is favorite powdery mildew <laughs> caused by uh, fungal pathogen, and it's a biotic stress which is common in greenhouses as well as fields that have favorable environmental conditions for that. Um, PM has potential to reduce yield, especially in greenhouse conditions, and can also be severe in outdoor field settings. The effect on the production of cannabinoids is mostly unknown, but cannabinoids may have evolved to deter pests and pathogens, and so such a relationship would not be surprising. And the last um, stressor that we have used in this study is wounding. Mechanical damage uh, can be caused by natural sources, usually, like hail, um, 
um, or herbivory or result from cultivation and mechanical weed removal. So in this um, uh, study, um, they tried, I believe, like a weed shredder or something to affect the foliage uh, because in general, wounding has the potential to cause a systemic response, inducing the systemic production of hormones such as um, jasmonic acid and abscisic acid, and that has been linked to changes in cannabinoid um, abundance. And uh, I am complete. Materials and methods. We have three cultivars of high cannabinoid hemp that was used. So we have a TG, TJ's CBD, a T2, and then a Cornell breeding line. Uh, all the cultivars were started at a similar time from either cuttings or seeds. And they were also, or sorry, the uh, Cornell breeding line in particular was also screened using a molecular marker uh, to remove the male plants. All of the selected plants were entirely phenotypically female and no pollination in the field was noted. A split pot design was used. So they have this organized. There's a beautiful figure there on figure one. Uh, that shows how the three cultivars were randomized within the treatment plots um, and the complete block design to replicate the blocks. So please take a look at that pretty, pretty picture. Uh, each, which is also, I should say, Dr. Anubis's favorite is the pictures. Uh, each treatment plot contained three plants of each cultivar. Okay, so three of three. Seedlings and cuttings were established in a greenhouse potting mix. This one I haven't heard of yet. This is maybe a little American one. I'm not sure. Lambert's LM triple one. I haven't heard of Lambert's in Canada. Um, 50 cell deep trays. Uh, these were transplanted into raised beds uh, with a black plastic mulch and drip irrigation ooh, on July 28th at the Cornell Agritech McCarthy Farm. And it was put in a well, in a sorry, in a field with a well-drained Ontario loam soil with more than a two-meter depth to a restrictive feature. So two meters of space for the root zone. Uh, conventional fertilizer, 191919, uh, was applied at a rate of 157 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, and no other additional fertilizer uh, was added. Uh, so pretty basic, basically, just a straight little, well, pretty even nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, nothing really too special yet. Um, soil moisture was monitored in control uh, with a lovely hobo monitor. Uh, those things are great. Uh, hobo and Inkbird are the two little Bluetooth sensors I like. So hobo, I'm very familiar with. And yes, H-O-B-O, -O, I said hobo, uh, installed to a depth of 10 centimeters or I guess that's about three inches, I believe. Uh, in the middle of each plot, and those uh, data, lager, uh, data loggers, the hobo meters, um, are wirelessly linked uh, to a monitoring station. So uh, adequate soil moisture was applied through uh, the trickle irrigation uh, during periods where the insufficient rainfall uh, was noted. And there is a uh, measure that they did use there uh, to ensure that the water content was the same or had a certain uh, basic level. 
Uh, stress treatments were initially applied uh, in the September for this study. So uh, we had them initially uh, put out in July, end of July, July 28th, and then the stress treatments were applied September 14th and 15th uh, when the plants had initiated flowering. Uh, for the flooding stress, uh, the irrigation was applied through the irrigation system only on the flood treatment plots, and it was repeated throughout the sampling period to maintain the soil water content, uh, typically about two or three times per week. Uh, Ethafon, uh, Ethafon 2, uh, New Farm, and Alsip uh, was all applied as a spray to the entire plant until the leaves were fully wet. Uh, and again, ethafon was applied twice, um, once on September 14th, uh, and then again on September 22nd. The powdery mildew inoculation was accomplished by transferring um, from diseased leaves to shoot tips um, of the treatment plants using a paintbrush. Uh, leaves infected with, <laughs> sorry, I was just actually picturing somebody brushing these off. <laughs> Um, they were taken from naturally infected plants um, from the TJ's CBD uh, cultivar that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the four shoots of each plant in the powdery mildew treatment plants were marked with a flagging tape um, for subsequent shoot tip sampling. And the terminal five leaves of each shoot were painted with a dry candida. The uh, glyphosate was applied one time as a spray to the entire plant until the leaves were wet. And the wounding treatment was accomplished by partially damaging the lower and a middle foliage <laughs> with a grass and weed trimmer <laughs> in such a way as to remove or wound a majority of the foliage on the outer portion of the plant below the influences, inflorescence. So essentially they just took a weed eater and took it to the, am I reading this, Dr. Anna, is this correct? Am I reading this correct? Did they literally take a weed eater to the plants? Is this, am I reading that yep. correct? Can, can you hear me? I put on, I put on headphones, so I don't know if it's working. Is it working? Yes, yeah, we can hear Oh, yay. Um, yes, that's exactly what they did. It's a weed eater, weed whacker, um, yep, uh, whipper sniffer, whatever you want to call it. It's one of those things that has the plastic thread. That oh, goodness, whips. okay. Yeah, yeah I was going to say weed whacker. Yeah, so and just for everybody as well, it does have a model number here. I didn't tend to look that the model number up because as I was reading this through, I was like, come on, you couldn't have taken a weed whacker to the plant, but they did. So um, if you're, you know, scoring it's a still, it. Still, I think still is a good brand. Yeah, it's the still brand of model FS70R Frank Sally 70 Roger. Uh, and uh, apparently it's effective in uh, taking out your cannabis. But, but anyway, I, digr I digress on that. Uh, the percentage of damage was not precisely quantified, but since the inner portions of each stem were not affected, the damage was approximately 40 to 50% of all the foliage wounded below the inflorescence or below the flowering portion. The damage was implemented to remove and damage the leaves, but not to break or prune stems. 
the wounding treatment was applied on September 14th and repeated immediately after the week two sampling on September 29th, so 15 days apart. The shoot tips were sampled for cannabinoid extraction and analysis immediately prior to the application of all the stress treatments, and again in one-week intervals for three weeks, so on September 14th, 22nd, 29th, and October 6th, for a total of four sampling times. The third week after initial stress application was designated as the presumptive harvest date, sorry, uh, the third week after the initial stress application was designated as the presumptive harvest date, and the plants that received the herbicide treatment began to exhibit necrosis, uh, yellowing of the leaves, uh, and browning by the, by the next two sampling periods. So uh, the plant with the glyphosate treatments were definitely affected uh, and were basically dying, uh, again, exhibiting necrosis and browning, and so the sampling was targeting the healthiest looking shoot tips remaining by week three. One shoot tip sample was collected by harvesting the top 10 centimeters, so two and a half, three inches um, of an upper canopy shoot from each of the three plants in a plot. And those three shoot tips were combined in a paper bag, air dried at room temperature and milled in a Nutra Ninja Pro food blender. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, this has been like one of my favorites to go through. I just kind of want to put that out there. Uh, we have Weed Whackers. We have Nutra Ninja Pros. Uh, I, yeah. Cannabinoids were extracted and quantified by a high-pressure liquid chromatography HPLC using a previously established method because why we just test everything in cannabis with HPLC machines, and the total cannabinoids were calculated by summing the neutral form with the acidic form multiplied by a factor to account for decarboxylation. Uh, the statistic, statistical analysis was done in our version. This is some of the stuff that I don't know, but I want to repeat it because hopefully Dr. Anna can add some clarity to that. And then the library agricole version 1.4 uh, was used for two key mean separation and significance tests. Split-split ANOVA was modeled with treatment as a main plot factor and cultivar as the subplot factor. Um, what is Sutherweight approximation? The whole paragraph, Dr. Anna, I'm going to have to ask you to, to, to help us. Um, it's a very, so um, R is horrible and you don't need to know about it. Um, it's, <laughs> it's basically uh, a, uh, it's kind of like a, a platform where you can either, there are packages for various statistical, lots of different kinds of statistical analysis where you can either like copy code and put it in there and it'll run like whatever that test for the package is, or you can write your own code and develop your own programs to run your own statistical analyses or um, draw um, images, uh, figures, whatnot. Um, so that ours, uh, if you know how to use it, it's awesome, but it's basically computer coding and, and a language. Um, the library, Agricole version, blah, 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 was used for the turkey mean separation. Okay, so those are just statistical analyses that will tell you the significance of your data. So where they say P is significant, your P value is significant at less than 0.5%, that's 
that's how they did that. That's the test that they used to do it. Um, ANOVA is the analysis of variation. So um, we've looked at some, uh, some of these before, like, it, it basically tells you how much variation is explained by your data. Um, so where they start talking about, um, they kind of talk about it further on in the paper that, uh, I can't remember, but anyway, it's, it's a, that's what ANOVA means. It's an analysis of variation in your treatment. Um, and then a satur weight approximation for calculating degrees of freedom. Okay, so you need to calculate degrees of freedom in order to do an ANOVA. Um, just, just don't worry about it. It's just basically the way that they did their statistical analyses to come up with the, how they um, to come up with their results. So blah blah blah. Statistical analysis method boring. Skip it. This is why we have the doctor on board, as everybody just heard in professional speak, blah, 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 we skip it. And with that, it's Dr. Anna's turn. <laughs> um, actually, I think it's Casey that's doing the results, yeah? Yeah, I'll take it away with the results. And I'll try to keep the statistical analysis mumbo jumbo at a at a at Hello. <laughs> yeah, I think if you just put blah, 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 math is boring, skip this part, and then keep going, that's great. <laughs> that is often the case. It's nice to kind of see the interesting uh, experimental methods, though. Um, thanks for that, Corey. So the results are pretty straightforward, this one. Um, yeah, a little bit of a limited study, but the process was great. Um, we're not trying to sell you anything, no weed whackers or blenders or anything, I swear. <laughs> but maybe we should start getting sponsored, you know? <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> Look, the Nutria Ninja Bro is getting an email from me, I'm just saying. Yeah. All right, so what did we find from this study? Uh, so looking at just our, our controls, unstressed, no chemicals or physical abuse we've got just kind of a nice normal increase of cannabinoids we're looking at cbd thc cbc which is interesting you don't usually i, I feel like that's not a common one to look at in analyses i would have thought cbn over cbc but let's go cbc and also cbg um so the, yeah these cannabinoids usually increase over time, it appears, when they're not stressed. Um, looking at figure two, we're pretty much just going to look at a lot of line graphs for these results, comparing the different cultivars and kind of their how, how much how their cannabinoid amounts increased or their ratios increased or decreased. Um, Nothing really was out of the ordinary. There's each each cultivar kind of might have dipped a little bit at the end of certain treatments, but um, overall in the unstressed, we're looking normal. Um, when we're looking at um, the cannabinoid ratios over time, uh, the, to the ratio of total potential CBD to THC is of great importance for... Um, anyone that's trying to grow compliant CBD hemp. Um, 
the range of mean values of the CBD to THC ratio by cultivar and unstressed controlled treatment was 23.3 to 28.2. Um, that's in figure three. And, and you can see that the, what, what one is that? The Cornell one that they had to take out the males for some reason, the CBD to CBC just dipped at week three, but everything else looks pretty, pretty normal. It's interesting. Um, then, so genotype by environment interaction of cultivar and stress treatment, just uh, due to the lack of cultivar specific responses to most of these treatments, the cultivars were combined to examine stress effects. Um, and then from here on, I think it's just going to be, yeah, we're, now we're looking at treatments. So cannabinoid accumulation in response to stress treatments. Overall, herbicide application was the only treatment that led to statistically significant reduction in total potential CBD and, CB, and THC and CBG. So that's kind of the big thing for this paper is most of the other stressors did not really stand a chance against cannabis, but you know, an herbicide, it's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, yeah, for each of the cannabinoids, the herbicide treatment is much lower for each week. And let's see. So as for the cannabinoid ratios, the range of mean CBD to THC ratios in stress-treated plants over the course of the trial was similar to the range of mean ratios in the cultivars of the control treatment. So not too much going on with the stress. And, and at harvest, uh, the, um, the only significant difference in any of the comparisons of THC levels were significantly lower in the herbicide-treated plants as to be expected. And you can see that in figure six, yeah, the herbicide treated bar is a lot lower than all the other treatments. And that is all of our results for this paper. But what does it mean, Dr. Anna? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, so, um... Going back to that figure that you were just talking about, basically uh, the herbicide was the, the big duh moment. Like if you spray a plant with an herbicide, it's going to really hurt it, right? That's the whole point of a herbicide. Um, but the interesting part in figure five that you were just talking about, the ratios stayed the same even in the herbicide-treated plants. Like the ratios didn't change. So even when the... CBD production dipped, the THC production dipped as well. Like the ratio didn't change. So that was like super interesting. But anyway, um, and I wanted to mention uh, Corey, <laughs> Corey's little giggle moment, the food ninja. I have to say, uh, lab equipment is very expensive and I am not above using a food dehydrator um, to dry down plates or use a salad spinner as a centrifuge. They cost 20 bucks at PJ Maxx. So don't laugh at that stuff. A <laughs> uh, hundred dollar food ninja versus like a, you know, million dollar sonicator or something like that. Sometimes it's a better choice. 
and then maybe they should have used the <laughs> bullet that's all i'm saying maybe they i mean maybe more money <laughs> maybe i mean dude grinding stuff up with the mortar and pestle is really how most labs grind up plant tissue do you know how tedious and boring that is to grind up like 200 400 samples Ugh, and the dishes oh the dishes anyway and then um casey to your point about why they looked at cbc and not cbn number one cbn is not produced in the plant it's a degradation product of thc so uh it would have to be sitting around in order for them to actually get any cbn you know from from their um analysis or from their data but CBC, so the, the synthase genes, the enzymes that take CBGA to CBDA, THCA, um, there's also a C, there's also a CBCA synthase gene. So you can take CBD to CBC. So I think that's where they went with that, and that's why they looked at CBC because they were doing CBD, THC, and CBC is the other synthase gene, which makes sense. To me, that's why they did that. Um, cool, thanks. Yeah. All right, so um, so going through the discussion super fast. All right, so I have, of course, underlined the bits that I thought were pretty important. So the first thing, uh, most plots sampled at uh, week three had a total THC concentration of more than 0.3%. So um, none of these treatments uh, produced compliant, what would be compliant um, hemp in the United States. So that was like uh, uh, like flag moment number one. Um, so even though this is a university doing a university study, they are not producing compliant hemp. Um, there is a linear relationship between um, THC and CBD. So, and, and this, this statement right here that says samples with more than 8% total CBD um, would be expected to have under 0.3% total THC. So this is like super important for anybody who's producing compliant or trying to produce compliant hemp, that if you go over that 0.8% mark for CBD, if you're trying to get the most CBD out of your product, if you go over 0.8 or go over 8%, you are going to be pushing your compliance. Um, so at my farm, we farm hemp. Uh, I will be monitor. I monitor our crops, and when it starts approaching eight percent, that's how we know we're co we're coming time to harvest. Because although eight percent isn't a lot, um, we can get money from that. Uh, we cannot get money if we have to destroy our crop due to non-compliance. Um, there was no effect of stress treatment on the total CBD to TH. The ratio at harvest, which I already went over that, um, supporting the hypothesis that ratio is genetic and not strongly strongly influenced by environmental stress. And I kind of got to that when I was talking about figure five, that no matter what you do to it, the THC to CBD ratio still stays pretty consistent. Um, uh, they talk about then um, the CBC variation in TJCBD and T2, those two cultivars, which is largely explained as a function of CBD at a rate of about 19 to one. So that CBD to CBC ratio uh, falls in line with what has previously been um, observed. However, they say that their Cornell cultivar, the GVA, GVA 
blah, blah, blah. It's got a big, stupid, long name. But anyway, it's a GVA, I'll call it, had a significantly greater total CBC than would be expected. And so they kind of talk about this because we're discussing it, right? Um, that it's possible that this strain, this particular strain, has extra cannabinoid synthase enzyme uh, expressed than these other hemp plants. Um, so it kind of kicks up a CBC production, although they didn't really look at that. They would have to kind of do a little bit more investigation as to what's going on there. But um, overall, the minor effect of stress treatment uh, on total CBC and CBD to CBC ratio may be altered due to regulation of CBDAS and CBCAS. Those are synthase genes. Um, and uh, also, um, in where did I write that? Um, it was in the, the, I think it was in the introduction, where they were talking about CBDA and, uh, synthase and CBDA synthases. They can make each other's thing. So like THCA can actually make some CBD and CBDA synthase can make some THC. And those are called promiscuous enzymes, meaning they don't just have one product that they make. They make multiple and so that's where we're kind of getting also a little bit of these other um compounds that are being produced um from these enzymes and then uh they could they there could also be some differences in um cultivars or testing um they didn't use auto flowers and there has been some auto like some studies out there are using auto flowering so there's like some other variables in there that could explain some of the differences that they were seeing in their study versus studies that have been done previously. Um, they, and they talk about decarboxylation. Um, there's limited data on cannabinoid decarboxylation in the plant. So uh, um, I think we talked about this before in other discussions that the plant doesn't make THC or CBD, you have to decarboxylate it. Um, but there's always things to be a, at least a little bit of THC or CBD in the plant. Uh, but there hasn't really been done a lot of uh, work done on this. There has been a little bit, and they sort of discuss it here. Um, um, so decarboxylation is promoted by age, heat, light, and small molecule catalysts, such as formic acid and methanol, um, but repressed by antioxidants. Um, and they were just wondering, like, the high initial decarboxylation percentage in the young flowers could be the result of different chemical environments. And... I guess that's just a really great way of saying we don't fucking know why that happened. Um, <laughs> and then their their concluding part is kind of like the looking to the future. What else can we do? Um, this is where they mentioned the several limitations of this study. And there were several. And I counted at least five limitations in the study, which just means, you know, I mean, cannabis studies are hard. And every time you answer a question, you get three more. Um, so the first limitation was that they only, so they were looking for, so since they were doing hemp, they were kind of addressing the question, they were kind of addressing two things here. One, how do hemp farmers stay compliant if, if THC is increased due to stresses? And then the other question kind of that they're um, going at, I think, is can you stress your plant to increase THC production if you're a marijuana farmer, right? So, but the, all that they, the, the sampling that they did, so normally for, for marijuana cultivation, you would take a representative sample of the batch 
So that would be from the tip and also mid and lower branches and kind of homogenize that sample to get uh, sort of a whole plant sort of um, potency, but they just only did the tip, uh, tips of the plant. So it's not, and then it's not the total yield, um, but that's okay because this is really helpful to hemp farmers that have to only take the top, I think it's five to eight inches of the apical cola. Um, so that's gonna be the most potent, it's gonna have the most THC, it's gonna have the most CBD, um, and, but that's really helpful for compliance. So although that was a limitation, I totally get where they were going with that. Um, in terms of like hemp. And then <clears throat> the second limitation was that there are only three cultivars that they chose, um, which does not cover the wide diversity of hemp or, or you know, and, and definitely not the, the plants that are over 0.3% THC. Um, so limitation is that basically we have a small sample size. It doesn't really matter how many cultivars they grew or how many plants they grew because we only have still have three cultivars. So we've got the, what did we have? We had clones, we had reg seeds, and then we had um, fem seeds. All right, so then number three was that the stress treatments that they chose were relevant really only to the wet northeast U.S. climate. Um, they didn't do any drought, heat, or salinity tests, which also could be useful for people in other kinds of places. Um, or freezing. Freezing is another one um, that they could have done, which they didn't mention, but I thought of. And then with the stress treatments that they did do, they really only had one intensity. So it was either, you know, all flooding or not. It wasn't like a little flooding, a lot of flooding, a medium amount of flooding, or a little herbicide, a lot of herbicide, and a medium. You know, they they maybe could have extended the study to have low, medium, and high treatment groups. However, you know, this is um, this is cannabis, and you only get so much money and so much room to do these studies. So, I mean, that's always a limitation. I mean, pretty much any research is going to be, you know, how much time you got, how much space you got, how much money you got. Um, and then number five, this is only a single site in a single year. So year-to-year -year variations could have played a role um, if they did the same treatment in California versus New York where Cornell is at. Um, that could have also been made a difference. Um, but their final concluding sentence is what I kind of um, started with is that evidence provided here supports the conclusion that THC accumulation is proportional to that of CBD and is not strongly affected by environmental stress. So no matter what you do to the plant, um, that THC to CBD ratio is going to stay consistent. So if your CBD production goes down, so does your THC. And if you're getting more CBD produced, you will also have more THC produced. Um, so it will affect the cannabinoid production, but not the ratio in which they're produced at. And that concludes my two-hour lecture. <laughs> inside joke, inside joke. Well, yeah, there we have it. Cannabis is quite a formidable opponent to stress, except when it comes to herbicides. I was curious about why they chose flooding as one of the stressors. Just because 
like you know i mean i just feel I like mean, they would so, damage their roots you know and that's why i was really surprised about that yeah. one yeah that was the point they were because um a lot of water yeah can damage the roots you can get root rot that sort of thing and they mention um in the beginning that it could uh um it could inhibit nutrient uptake if the roots are damaged so if you don't have enough nutrients going to the plant are they going to be able to produce those cannabinoids in the same sort of amount that they're is it going to is the plant going to wig out and be like oh shit i'm going to die and then produce and i think that's kind of where they got this idea from is that stress caused the plant to freak out think it's going to die and upset uh, those phytochemical production if it's thinks an insect munching on it is going to make more cannabinoids because potentially they could act as a insect repellent or whatever. Um, if the plant is freaking out because it's under some sort of flooding stress, like maybe it'll produce more trichomes, which could then potentially um, attract some pollen and maybe it'll get a seed out before it dies. We have to, you know, like I always think about what, what the plant is trying to achieve in its whole life is it just wants to make seeds and reproduce. That's all it wants to do. So any stress that you do, the plant could respond to, uh, you know, because it's thinking that its life is coming to an end. It needs a Hail Mary to try and get what it needs done, done in the short time that it has. And, I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard all the old wives' tales about uh, adding ice water a couple of days before harvest, um, harvesting in the dark, you know, all these different kinds of things. And they're all kind of, I feel like some of them are rooted in this stress response um, idea. Anyway, that's just my theory. Yeah. And then the other one that I was kind of curious about, the mechanical damage, because, you know, I would agree that there might be some kind of a maybe influence, but I was surprised that they just kind of like chopped the leaves off and I'm like wondering you know because it was done with a weed whacker probably I don't know if I was them I would have chopped like a you know a branch here and there like not fully or something like that instead of just well, so I think I think the weed whacker um in some respect could be I mean in terms of a plant that has no eyes and no ears that vibration as well as the mechanical damage of its leaves could mimic something like a locust infestation or something. Um, you know, herbivory is not always little tiny insects. Sometimes it's big insects or cows, things like that. Um, and if the phytochemical is the phytochemical output is is you know upregulated, like let's pump out some more chemicals to get whatever the hell is eating us out of here. I feel like a weed whacker actually could probably do a pretty good job at that. Do you think when I get my weed allergy, the plant thinks that I'm the herbivore <laughs> trying to eat it? <laughs> um, so it, it could be that, you know, that, that smell that you smell when you mow your lawn or weed whack your plants, that's your plant screaming. That's the way that it, it communicates that it's under attack. It is screaming. That's what that smell is. Um, I think also it, your allergy attacks are probably because you're kicking out a whole lot of pollen when you upset those flowers. 
Um, but yeah, those, those, those smell, that's your point. Oh, I get allergy to veg plants, yeah. Dr. Anubis. Like veg plants, ah. <laughs> even if I touch the leaf, like without taking it off, I'm just like watering them, I will still get a reaction. So that was my guess that maybe it's secreting something that's supposed to deter like deers or something. But yeah, yeah it's a be, pretty I mean, interesting it's one. It's upregulated that fast, like not immediately um, with the upregulation of, I mean, it's, it's not an immediate reaction. It's kind of like a, oh shit. It'll, it'll take a, some time to kick in, but I think that there are phytochemicals in cannabis. A lot of people are allergic to it when they touch it. They get itchy arms. Um, they get, you know, sneezes, watery eyes. I mean, it's a plant, just like all plants. It's not, it's not, um, there's nothing to make cannabis less allergenic than any other plant. I mean, I'm, I'm allergic to grass. Like if I lay in grass, I'll get itchy, you know, and I didn't hurt it, but plants don't like, I mean, uh, <laughs> they don't want to get messed with. So yeah, they make chemicals that are kind of irritating. Um, not okay. annoying. But yeah. Yeah. Irritate. I mean, the whole Solanaceae family, you know, potatoes, um, tomatoes, and the whole night, this the nightshade family, are full of irritating intoxicants or ir irritating. Oh my God, why can't I talk? Irritating and toxic phytochemicals. If you eat tomato leaves, you're gonna get real sick. And tomato leaves make you itchy too. People who work with tomatoes always wear like sleeves and gloves. I was kind of hoping that the cannabinoids would rise up in the. In the weed whacked ones. Um, I also was kind of hoping that too. You know, oh, here's another limitation to the study is that they only looked at THC, CBD, and CBC. They didn't look at any terpenes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they really didn't take a comprehensive um, approach to this. They could have measured so many more things, um, but so many people in research really that's their focus is THC and CBD and it's like but, but what about everything else like we don't yeah, even know what's I've, going what we don't even know what's going on in this plant we don't know how it works we don't know what makes it tick and yet we are so focused on these two stupid chemicals yeah and I'd rather <laughs> see more of a diverse analysis than just like those cannabinoids and their ratios I mean they didn't even mention it like Maybe the 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 mechanically you know treated ones. What what did they call that? Maybe maybe those were like super chirpy, and we'll never know right. because they didn't say anything. Yeah, I'm really surprised that they didn't. I thought the easiest stressor here was drought. Like, I haven't found too many times where my cannabis plant outdoors is, like, really begging for water, or really, like, begging that it doesn't need water. Like, you know, it just, it's, I haven't really into, run into a situation where it's been overwatered. I've kind of run into more underwatering, so <laughs> kind of shocked that they didn't. <laughs> you do like, know that this area just, like, recently flooded, like, last Thursday. <laughs> like, literally last Thursday, they're under, you know... They're underwater. Yeah, it's, I don't know that one. Like I don't know. I guess this is this is probably my West Coast bias showing, but you know, could be. I definitely have run into way more problems with lack of 
water more so than having water. Um, and I, I would think that, yeah, like what, what what's up with the acephalon, acephalon? Like why did they yeah. choose that over why drought? Like why that? did Thank you, yes. Like yeah. drought could have been better or, you know, freezing could have been better. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure why they picked that. There's that are like super easy where it's, it's a little bit, yeah, it could have been, like I don't, it's... Um, we should write them a strongly worded email. It sounds like they were just okay. I, you know, I'm gonna throw a little bit of shade at Cornell, but but they just trying to act smarter than they want. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it just it well, seems like they could have been a little bit simpler with this, and with information that could actually be transferred over to cultivators. Like, no, we're gonna do this instead and get a wheat. Like, there's actual, you know, mechanical cultural practices in some of these large scale facilities where they cut off branches at very strange times. Uh, you know, right in the middle so, of, of flowering formations in between week one and three, people are, you know, lopping off branches and lopping off leaves. And I know three weeks is a really <laughs> odd time. Uh, I mean, why do they only do three weeks? Like, it seems to me from the start of flower to mature flower, it's more than three weeks. I just, right? Slightly. A lot slightly. more than three weeks, especially <laughs> if they're not autoflower. Like, it seems like this is a rushed study however okay so something that i'm looking at here okay so larry smart is the second author on the paper so he is the head of this lab this is his lab they do cannabis research he whatever i'm wondering if jacob toff is a grad student not unlike myself a couple of years ago um and they probably no actually they do have funding their funding is from um is it from the uh, work is supported by New York State Department of Ag and Markets through a couple of grants. So they're supported by the Department of Ag. I'm guessing that Jacob Toss is a grad student. And then Christine, George, Craig, Glenn are probably either, they're probably undergrads or maybe graduate students, maybe lab techs. Uh, and then maybe Jocelyn um, helped with the statistical analysis. That would be my guess. Uh, it's just a guess. Don't quote me on any of this. But if it is, if this is a graduate student research project, this all totally makes sense. Why? Expand. <laughs> Why? Well, because... Um, uh, flooding is a lot easier to do than drought if you're growing outside. You can't, how, how, how are you going to create a drought situation if there isn't a drought situation? Um, it's much easier to flood something than it is to dry it out. Um, I think the thinking here is like a lot of people are doing sex. Uh, not sex reversal, but, um, you know, treating plants with chemicals to make male flowers on female plants. They wanted to know, does that stress out the plant or not? Um, powdery mildew is super easy to do. Herbicides, super easy to do. Physical wounding, super easy to do. So, um, I mean, to me, this feels like a graduate student project. And Jacob Toth has put out a couple of papers looking at uh, a couple of different things. 
Um, oh God, what was the last one that I really liked of his? It had to do with synthase genes too. So you said it's uh, just totally my cultivation biases because I've read all these other papers about drought stress and it would just be wonderful to see these other papers kind of, you know, dive into that stuff. So clearly Yeah, I just they probably the don't have all the, my own personal they, <laughs> they probably I mean they probably don't have the indoor space because they all have I mean they have to grow everything in the same space. They can't have like some growing indoors and some growing outdoors to be able to yeah, drought stress some and like I just don't think that they have the facility space to be able to carry out those kinds of experiments. And if you're in an outdoor grow, these are all really easy to do. In, in in my brain and you know i i was a grad student and i had all these big ideas and my advisor was always like anna great idea we can't do that because of x y and z and i'm like ah great well then how about this and he'd be like that's getting closer but still <laughs> like you need to reel it in a little bit and think about what the space we have is like and what we can actually achieve and get results from like that's the other thing like you can do a shit ton of experiments, but if you don't get any results, you've just wasted a whole bunch of time and money. This, hmm. I wonder if there's one of these weeks where we might not do a paper and actually maybe just interview or just ask you some things about how these experiments go and like what it actually takes to get these papers <laughs> off the ground. Because what you're oh, saying right now is like, this is, this could be something because. You know, I think that's one of the other, I guess, you know, this is a really kind of nice example without meaning to be an example. You know, I'm a large scale cultivator that's excited about science papers and I'm going, how come they didn't look at this? And you're, you know, from <laughs> academia going, well, stupid, this is why. <laughs> oh, I would never call anybody stupid. It's just, it's really, you know, the thing about science is it's all kind of done behind closed doors and you really don't see any of the production until a paper comes out and it's really easy to ask questions and to be like, well, why the fuck did they do that? That's stupid. But usually there's a really good reason behind it. And, you know, one of the big questions that I ask all the time, you know, this <laughs> it kind of is in line with this whole ivermectin thing. Paper came out last year that ivermectin could help with COVID. Last June, right? Um, and that's what all these people are, they're like, ivermectin, it's, you know, got potential. I'm like, okay, last year, last June, that's like 20 years ago in, if we're talking about COVID research, it's the equivalent of like 20 years ago. If ivermectin really did something, where are all the other papers showing that it does something? They're not around because it doesn't work, you know? Um, that's something that I always look for, like people saying, oh, you know, there's a ton of, GMO, genetically modified cannabis out there. And I'm like, where is it? Where are the papers? Where, where is it? It's not here. It's not, it's not a thing. It's not a thing yet. And it's not going to be a thing for a while. Um, and there's reasons behind that. But people just don't know how science works behind the closed doors, inside the lab, setting up experiments, um, where the money comes from, how much time it takes, the hoops you have to jump through. Um, the prep you have to do in terms of like these analyses, like they take so long, um, like learning how to do R I'm telling you, it's ridiculous. You don't want to know. Um, 
<laughs> and just all these sorts of things, and then writing it up, I and then up, and then I brought up some pretty then, bad flashbacks mentioning that, didn't I? <laughs> I don't know how to use it at all. Like I would have to rely on, we had two people in our lab that could do R. Well, one really, she taught the other one how to do it. And I would just be like, can you help me? <laughs> Cause I can't do it. And it would always be like, you can do it, Anna, just do this. And I'm like, I don't get it. I can't. So the girls would help me. But yeah, if you're, if you're good at R, you can probably get a job anywhere in science. Like R is like the shit. But it really is the shit. Like it sucks. Yeah, it's not. It's not the funnest computer program I've ever used in my life. <laughs> it, it it really is a whole other language, and if you don't speak it, then uh, you like you miss a semicolon somewhere, and you, everything sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just kind of planning and preparing a experiment is hard enough because you have to like really plan like okay we're gonna do this to look statistically at these results and we need to try to convey this ultimate result we're trying to look for it's like whoa yeah <laughs> your experimental easy. design your experimental design is everything um if you design your experiment wrong then you know, even if you come up with these great results, there's a whole bunch of holes that can get poked in it by reviewer three, especially um, <laughs> when you write up your paper for for a publication. Um, you know, like I just, I know we're going over time. We're five minutes over. Molly's going to destroy us. Um, but, you know, that paper that I just got accepted last week, that has literally been in review in various, it's been in through four different journals. Um, one of the journals put it through five revisions and still hadn't made a decision. And I'm like, dude, shit or get off the pot. Either print it or don't. We're not changing anything. And they were like, well, and I'm like, okay, we're pulling it. We're done. I'm done with you. Fuck <laughs> off. So the last public, the last journal that we put it in, we just submitted it back in May. Um, we had three reviewers. They all gave us feedback. We addressed all the feedback. Then two of those reviewers dropped out. They need two reviewers to endorse in order to publish. So they had to find another reviewer who also gave us feedback, which we addressed, and he endorsed us, or she endorsed us. I don't know if it's a boy or girl. Um, and yes, now it is going to be published. But oh my God, that's three years of shit. It's not, this stuff is not easy. And it, um, yeah, I think we should, I mean, I'm happy to have a discussion week where we talk about what it takes to get something from um you know where you're designing an experiment through to publication and oh, back to my paper i'm so excited that this got accepted but that publication was it was literally i was a mentor for an undergraduate who wanted to get some cannabis lab experience and i designed a project for him it just happens to be really fucking cool and now he has a publication out of it let's read it <laughs> we can we can read it it hasn't it's uh they haven't sent me a proof yet to approve once they do i'm sure it'll be a pretty fast track to being published but i mean we can do on the back end we can talk about it I guess up to you <laughs> i mean we can discuss the one that's on bioarchive um it's a different version but it's you know all the same conclusions and everything cool yeah because um I think we still need to pick a paper for next week. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Avery nailed it when he said, this is really weird to be discussing a paper that you wrote. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it'd be cool, though, to, like, I mean, ultimately, if we start getting more scientific papers out there, um, if we always had, like, one of the art or the, the authors join us for the conversation, but I know that takes a lot of planning and and finding people, but... I don't know everybody. Wouldn't that be um, awesome? <laughs> I don't know everybody. I do know of the people that I I would love it if Daniela was more open to like doing this kind of stuff, but I could probably, and I don't, she does stuff that I don't really know a lot. She does whole genome stuff like next gen sequencing and bioinformatics stuff, which I'm not super great at. Um, so it would be great if she could come and talk, but she does love talking about cannabis. So maybe I can convince her. She's also in the process of moving to New York. Actually, to work with Larry, to work with Larry Smart Whoa. at Cornell. So, uh, so we've already done his papers, so she doesn't have to be biased. She can talk about her papers now. <laughs> cool. I'll try. I'll try and talk her into it. Awesome. Well, if there isn't any further questions, comments, concerns, or anything, um, we will, you know, follow. Be sure to follow uh, Resonate Radios socials and check out the website i believe it's resonate radio dot nope media no. <laughs> nope resonate, resonate with, with us, us dot media yeah dot media okay <laughs> i believe for next week we're considering a paper about optimal rate of organic fertilizer during flowering stage uh, so one, yes. maybe if that's something we want to do for next week we can do that um i also think um that conversation with Dr. Anna would be very valuable. Maybe um, when Corey is back, we can do it in like an interview format or something like that. So that can definitely be put in the books. Um, I just wanted to thank everyone for doing this and attending the session. It's always a lot of fun. I'm always learning something new. So that's great. Um, this will be up on YouTube. Um, if you haven't followed us, please do. Our uh, socials on youtube and twitch are resonate media on instagram you can find us at team resonate and uh, we'll be back on um next monday at 5 30 p.m pacific or 8 30 p.m eastern time with another research paper we will be posting um the title of the paper on our instagram um, as well as website so please just make sure you check with that um and uh, hopefully you can participate for next week um and uh, yeah, on that, I just wanted to thanks everyone again for attending. It was a lot of fun and uh, we'll see you all next week. And there you have it, everybody. Another episode of the Resonate radio podcast thank you so much for making it all the way through to the end we appreciate the downloads the follows leave us a review if you're listening to us on the apple podcast please subscribe and hit the bell over on youtube and twitch you can find us over there at resonate media you can also find us on instagram at team resonate you can also send us an email to info at resonatecannabis.com 
I hope you all have a wonderful day and thank you so much again for taking the time to listen to us here on Resonate Radio. We'll see you again next time. Thank you.